Hello, welcome to this week's HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm Dave West, HSJ Deputy Editor, and each week we gather a cast from our team of expert journalists to explain and debate the most important news issues right now in NHS policy and leadership. And this week it's a performance special. We're talking a lot about the core performance of the NHS. And for this I'm joined by three of HSJ's podcast regulars, our workforce correspondent Annabelle Collins, Bureau Chief Ben Clover, and Senior Correspondent for Performance James Illman. And in this waiting special, we're going waiting time special, we're going to talk about three important aspects of the world of waiting times, waiting lists, and waiting targets. First of all, we'll cover emergency care and some major developments this week in the debate about whether to get rid of the emergency care for our waiting target. And secondly, we'll talk about planned care or elective care services. And we've we've broken two stories this week. One about uh, one about NHS England providing extra money for to try to keep elective waiting lists down over winter, and another story about the hard patient serious patient safety impact of of long waits for follow up appointments. Let's start though, um, James, with emergency care. And this week, uh, just as uh, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, firmed up his position in favour of changing the emergency care target, it appeared um, yesterday, several key organisations, clinical and patient representative organisations, have come out apparently against doing so. Um, what were the most important of these interventions we've seen this week on the emergency care target? Sure. So just to give a, um, a little bit of context, um, Matt Hancock... Health Secretary went on to a BBC Radio 5 Live interview and um, he, he, he sort of suggested that um, he, he was asked uh, if the government should be judged on, their, on the NHS's performance against um, the four-hour target. And he, he sort of suggested that, um, no, the, 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 the government should be judged on performance against the right target, the target that was uh, more clinically appropriate. Now, he didn't say what that target was because, um, it, well, he, he just didn't say, but the, the, the implication was that the four-hour target was the wrong target. Now, this all comes in the context of an ongoing review of all NHS targets, the Clinical Standards Review, and um, uh, which now, crucially, does not... Uh, even report until March. So, first of all, the health secretary was being uh, challenged just a week after the NHS has reported its uh, record lows. And as we discussed in the last podcast, this this wasn't the usual incremental drop that we've become accustomed to seeing in the performance figures against for our target and other target. It was a real um, monstrous collapse. So, um, you know, Hancock was came up with a slightly weaselly line of defence, frankly, uh, against why the government shouldn't be judged on that. He also appeared to preempt the Clinical Standards Review, which does not make its final recommendations until March. So you had, you had two reasons there why, uh, justifiably, there was quite a robust pushback from the clinical community. So first of all, Arkem, uh, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, and uh, the kind of pivotal player in this debate uh, came out and um, uh, very sort of 
robustly said that um, they'd seen nothing uh, from the clinical reviewer standards to indicate that a viable replacement for the four-hour target exists. And crucially, went on to say that um, this is uh, Catherine Henderson, the, uh, the, the president, said that um, uh, she believed that testing should soon draw to a close. So th that's, that was quite a significant starting point. After that, uh, the uh, Society of Acute Medicine also uh, raised fundamental concerns that the uh, the, 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 the the targets there there was a push from Mr Hancock for the target to be pushed for reasons which could be um, political expedience over clinical performance. Uh, there were also statements made by uh, the Royal College of Nursing's uh, Emergency Care Association and also the uh, Patient Association as well. So a, a really significant day in the debate. Uh, and then just again, looking at the broader context, as long as the review's been going on, people have been saying to me, we feel like this is a process following a decision, that the decision has already been made from on high that the four hour target should go. Now, the four hour target, is a, it, it has many flaws and even those ardent supporters of the target accept that. But unless this review comes up with a regime which is better than what the NHS already has, then um, getting rid of it is, is, is not going to go down well with the clinical groups. All right, thanks. So um, how long has it been, how long have we had this target? The target came into place in about 2004. Well, in 2004, uh, it was roundly met for uh, until July 2015. And interestingly, during that period, you didn't hear ministers going on to radio interviews and complaining about the target. Um, uh, it was all fine. But you did hear clinicians uh, complain. Uh, I, I was looking, uh, recalling back to thinking about the the past decade and at the end of the Labour um, government of the 2000s, we, you know, HSJ published various things about their record and the sort of, it was, which was obviously very good in terms of putting a lot of money in and meeting, um, creating and uh, uh, meeting and exceeding target performance. But the sort of the big sour note was that they'd kind of upset the entire clinical community with these targets and, uh, you know, uh, um, the suggestion was that they had um, had alienated clinical clinicians from involvement in, in the NHS and the running of the NHS because of these broadly hated targets. So it, it's kind of interesting now to see um, a number of clinical groups embracing particularly the emergency target anyway and, and champ becoming the champions of it. Completely. I mean, th so the Royal College of Emergency Medicine has long been uh, a champion of the four-hour standard. But when Catherine Henderson took over, she she actually took a very pragmatic line on this and, and sort of acknowledged that it did have flaws and that they were... they. I think Arkham have really entered into the process in good faith and wanted to find something better, as you say... Uh, yeah, it's been a um, uh, uh, an issue which has riled clinicians for a, a number of reasons. There's uh, what you know, the three hour fifty five spike, where just before um, uh, the four hour mark comes up, then um, you know there's a concern that patients are, and 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 it's shown in the data as well that there's this big spike there, and then when a patient passes that point. You, you know, uh, a breach is a breach is a breach. So um, it, they they might have to wait even longer, and that that has ups you know rightly upset clinicians for a long time. And they've there's also been a well, it works for the managers um, kind of line of argument because operationally uh, it is relatively simple. 
um, and, and and that um, for obvious reasons is um, it just makes a uh, hospital manager's job uh, a tiny bit easier. It's obviously an incredibly difficult job, and um, um, uh, but that 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 kind of simplicity doesn't sit well with the medical community who are like this is not sophisticated enough measure. So yeah, and 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 um, but then in 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 the face of the great unknown uh and um you know this trial taking place and people realizing oh maybe uh we haven't developed anything better than suddenly it doesn't look like such a terrible idea after all and also sorry to be to be fair to hancock you know this was a a five live interview which covered a bunch of different subjects kind of it, it might not be as settled view that we should get rid of it it might have been a bit impromptu mightn't it it, well, it, it's not the first time that he's raised these uh, kind of views back in August, in fact, and, and consistently since then, he's, 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 he's always referring to the four-hour target as old. Uh, and if something is old, it suggests that there's going to be something new. Um, certainly an old target isn't the target you think of as the one you're going to be going forward with and he's talked about it being clinically inappropriate um, which is similar language than we've heard from uh, NHS Chief Executive Simon Stevens so um, you know this yes he, he may well have been caught a bit off guard uh, he was talking on multiple subjects from he's talking about um, regional airlines as well so so it, it was a wide-ranging interview but this is certainly not the first time he's he's expressed views of this ilk if the government does uh, the government and nhs england do plow ahead with this um, what's the replacement system going to likely to look like that's a very interesting question i mean because the 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 concept behind the review was that they would trial uh, an average waiting time and then also some uh, shorter targets for uh, the most sick patients, uh, heart attacks and, and, and that kind of thing. Now, um, I remember people, uh, senior emergency medics saying to me at the time, well, that's, you know, of course, we're going to treat the, uh, the shortest people as quickly. The, the, yeah, that's the, what the most urgent. That's, that's <laughs> kind of what clinicians do. Um, so, so that was, uh, um, but and and then the average waiting time, which th there was a, a school of thought for a while that that could provide a cornerstone around which to build a new regime, but you know senior um, senior sources and, and 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 this view was backed by the Royal College of Emergency Medicine said this the average waiting time is encouraging a focus on uh, quickly dealing with non-admitted patients which is obviously a completely the wrong incentive so uh it doesn't feel like and the uh, and, and another problem about this whole trial is it's been kind of carried out behind closed doors with very high and unnecessary levels of secrecy so we don't really know what what they've got um but um uh yeah it's um it, it's gonna have to be a dramatic few weeks if it's going to be something uh, to turn around um, this 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 kind of uh, growing consensus among um, clinicians that um, they're not very happy with the idea of the target, uh, the four-hour target being um, ditched. Because Dr. Henderson said, like her quote was something along the lines of, "We should stop looking at ways to to get round the target 
and stop yeah. focusing on how to actually achieve it. Which was, um, which is, which is, I think that's quite unusually direct language for. Yeah, for um, it, it was appeared very direct, and also a sense from the clinicians that you know you can't magic away the NHS's problems uh, by changing the targets. It's it's not going to suddenly alleviate pressure on overcrowded A&Es and um, yeah as I've said many times before you can weigh a pig in uh, in kilos or pounds but it's still going to weigh the same. James I just wanted to jump back to something you said mm. um, a little while ago about how the target was met until 2015. I was just wondering what happened. What happened it's yeah. a good question I mean it's a combination of um, pressures cranking up there's also the we know that um, the funding since 2010 has been below the 3.8% average real terms increase that um, the uh, NHS has become accustomed to since its formation. Uh, and we know that the workforce uh, gaps have grown and grown and grown. Um, uh, so it, it, it was that combination of, of workforce funding um, facilities becoming more and more decrepit. Uh, and this winter, um, the um, uh, the pensions crisis was thrown into the mix as well, so it's just been a real kind of um, uh, mix of reasons that, that that's kind of yeah. Perfect so a resource issue plus this year pensions. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's move on to um, the other big area of of acute. Um, hospital performance where where uh, unashamedly acute um, secondary care focused um, this week I'm afraid um, to talk about elective care and we've we've um, published a couple of important stories this week uh, as I mentioned at the outset one about the overall uh, elective waiting list and um, NHS England's particularly directing of additional money to particular trusts, particular parts of the country for sending um, patients to be to be treated on waiting list initiatives, try and keep the overall list down over winter, a time when the, the waiting list um, normally grows a lot because of the focus on emergency care. Um, so Annabelle, you, you broke that story. Tell us what you what you learned this week. So it's linked to a story we published just before uh, Christmas, I think late November. So that we knew um, NHS England was kind of scrambling to to um, fund trusts um, for kind of preventing a winter crisis. But I think this, the new information in the story was how much money um, they were putting into this. So uh, uh, they said around 22 million, but this isn't for everybody. It's um, been targeted at specific trusts um, that have either already got a winter plan in place, although I can imagine this money would have been quite helpful when they were making their winter plans, um, and or, or had had a kind of, I think the words where they used was kind of proven, proven delivery. Um, yeah. So the, the trusts who were not doing terribly, so I think maybe they thought they'd see the greatest impact. See actual benefit rather yeah. than sort of pouring it into um, a kind of black hole in Brighton or something. Yeah, like exactly. That. So, um, I think it was 44 trusts had been selected to um, be given money to spend on um, elective, managing their elective work, and then 22 for diagnostic. Um, and it's not, and um, obviously um, outsourcing is an important part of that, but it's not, they're not saying all of this money is spent on outsourcing. They did make the point that some of the cases would also be insourced to other trusts with capacity, but I don't know where those trusts are. <laughs> um, but it, um, it's yeah, it's it's interesting because it kind of it's it sprang from um, 
initially or I thought was going to be a, maybe a local story at um, Nottingham University Hospitals, which is a really kind of important strategic acute trust in East Midlands. And um, they'd been given um, this money, um, I think it was about £500,000 to, um, to um, send patients private. Um, and um, they'd also been given a target of sending 30 patients um to have their, I think, orthopaedic work done privately um, by the end of January, um, which is quite interesting. Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean, this isn't an area that I I have lots of expert expertise in, but it seems slightly unusual. Mm. Well, I particularly, I think we were surprised about Nottingham because they mm. don't have a history of, of, of not sending a lot of or, no, orthopaedic work privately because no. they've got their own uh, uh, sort of cold site hospital. Yeah, City Hospital mm. and also the treatment centre that they've very recently acquired. Although from I, the private sector. From, from Circle, um, but there's a legal challenge pending there. Um, but um, as I understand it, there's still there are still some issues there with um, getting staff... Um, doctors specifically to work um, as I'd like them to. Because it's it's been if you if you're a trust or you're NHS England trying to deal with a big elective backlog, um, you've got like a couple of levers you can try and you can do what they call a waiting list initiative, which basically over time in the NHS hospital, uh, you, like commissioners, the commissioning groups could kind of go, we are going to commission a local private hospital to to do a load of NHS funded work. Or sometimes the trust commissions a private hospital to do a bunch of NHS funded work, and like insourcing can mean going to another uh, going to another NHS trust. But insourcing is this. There's also a sort of um, slightly odd new commercial term where there are insourcing companies who come and <laughs> it's like basically outsourcing overtime. In a port account trust. <laughs> yeah, so it's not always kind of port account stuff. It's often kind of like so we use NHS staff. But but we manage it, and we and we'll sort out this whole. It's sort of, yeah, it's called insourcing, but it's actually sort of outsourcing overtime within the NHS. But what what's really uh, unusual here, I think, is that um, NHS England kind of ad- have admitted, have given a figure, a national figure. Normally, they'll go out of their way in terms of not answering emails to 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 not let out a figure about how much how much is going to the the independent sector or the private sector because they don't traditionally like to have to field mm. calls and we're going to go, oh, you're well, putting I money think out to the it was sector. interesting. And, and as Annabelle said, we reported towards the end of November about this kind of scrambling of money and... Um, I'm not, uh, it's not a sort of proven link there, but the, you know, before the election, I think over the last couple of years when we've had a, a, a Conservative government but with a very small or uh, non-existent majority and a huge sensitivity about use of the private sector in any way in the NHS or virtually any way, I think there would have been a lot more concern before December the 13th about this story <laughs> getting out because it would be yeah. you know, an, an obvious, a, a big stick Labour would have used possibly Absolutely. unsuccessfully yeah. as is proven to, to bash the, the government. So I think there's that. So, you know, even though actually the government's uh, policy on the NHS so far is is broadly anti-competition and changing competition law and moving away from use of private sector in many areas. They are also going to be more relaxed about using it when they do need to or want to. Uh, I mean, fundamentally, kind of NHS-funded use of private provision isn't going anywhere. It's been. I'd be surprised if it wasn't at these sort of levels or or higher previously. They've just. Not <laughs> it's an interesting point about the election. Yeah, they just will have tried not to mention that. And actually, before December, they w- they didn't have this temporary pensions fix in place. I don't think they'd have got the doctors to do the work. So um, someone I was speaking to said they'd taken on some extra shifts over weekends at BMI 
um to, to do some of these lists i don't think they'd have done that before because the money would have been prohibitive yeah, cause it's interesting because you're going to go the, it's well documented lots of consultants d- turning down extra lists or traditional mm. waiting line initi- waiting list initiative catch up e- overtime stuff mm. um because of the pensions things but i i honestly don't know kind of if that applies if you just if you do that same work nhs funded private sector you can kind of you can you can skirt that issue um it would make sense Mm-hmm. At this point. Um, the on on the wider the total elective waiting list issue is round about four getting on for four and a half million. Um we have a new government who's um you know wishing to prove themselves on the NHS. They they may t- adjust the elective targets as well, but the size of the waiting list isn't gonna be a, you can't hide the total size of the waiting list very well. Um what's the actual prospects been for for getting it down uh, over the next months and years. Oh, that's interesting because that's what, in, the, in his interview earlier this week, the Prime Minister said, oh, it's our number one, I mean, not specifically elective waiting mm. times, but just no, waiting times. Well, 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 you're still talking about waiting lists rather than yeah. emergency. So it does suggest possibly I'm a focus on the elective, the planned care list. Possibly, yeah, I'm sure he's very alive to the detail of these things. <laughs> but, the, uh, <laughs> but no, so November, the figure's just out 4.4 million. That's 400,000 more than last November. And that was four hundred four thousand more than the previous ones. So, kind of, it's not as um, RTT elective stuff. It's never been as dramatic uh, for people as uh, as A and E stuff is. It's less. There's less pictures of people in a uh, on on the floor of an A and E. So, it's traditionally been a bit uh, neglected uh, comparative to to A and E pressures. But it's just built steadily, steadily, kind of like. Um, Rob Finley, who's a consultant that does a lot of uh, analytical work uh, on this and, and writes for us, said it's it would now, uh, we're now four years worth of sort of uh, growth above capacity um, that you'd have to that you'd have to correct. And I'm sure it's been costed somewhere. It's definitely been costed for Northern Ireland. What it would cost us to bring back to bring that back into mm. uh, into alignment. And it yeah mm. it fundamentally there's it's it's a capacity issue just like with A&E um kind of demand has grown kind of productivity is actually done like kind of heroically uh to to stay where it is um kind of in admissions but day admissions per day are sort of haven't haven't really grown and that's again that's kind of heroic in the light of uh the kind of all the disruption from overspill from A&E uh, all the all the disruption from from pensions, that kind of thing, mm. but yeah, it's hard to see it getting better without a massive influx of resources. And kind of part of the reason maybe it's not been higher up the agenda is the harm is harder to see. Um, but that's we're sort of getting to that. Like yeah, that. Let, let's talk about that in a sec. I just I did think it was notable that NHS England's response to Annabelle's story on this the waiting list initiative over winter bits couched in slightly uh, less direct language was essentially saying well this has helped a bit this winter but don't expect this kind of thing to do the job over the next few years government it was saying we need those um, 50,000 extra nurses uh, uh, sorry a net increase in nursing number of nurses and we need the facilities aka capital funding that you've promised um, and you're going to have to get that moving pretty quickly if you want to see this shift um, you know rather than for example um, as as some 
governments you know, perhaps tend to do, just dream up a waiting list initiative with the private sector and try and fix things that way. Um, but I mean, let's let's even then there's like a fundamental workforce issue mm. about doing that. Even if you kind of got every consultant in the land's going to go, I'm going to work my hours again in the private sector to clear it. You've still got. I mean, that would be that would be a huge outlay. But yeah, no, like I was saying about the, it's becoming slightly more visible. Uh, the patient arm. Yeah, yeah, and we're we're breaking a story this week in particular about ophthalmology. Yeah, ophthalmology is a sort of grim irony in in uh, the year 2020 to have to be writing so much about kind of the the avoidable damage to people's eyesight. Um, but it's caused very directly by delays to treatment. So this isn't just. So what we measure in the NHS, mainly on RTT, is uh, is how long it takes you to get your first appointment, right? Uh, and what we don't measure, like, at all, or barely, uh, is follow-ups. And, like, ophthalmology is really vulnerable to people having their, their eyesight damaged um, by not having a, a timely follow-up. So there's, there's all sorts of kind of chronic conditions that affect that. But but fundamentally, you can you can have your, your eyesight severely damaged or lose it altogether. Um, often if you just miss your follow-ups by by a couple of months um, so there's been so ophthalmology it's a high volume specialty like lots and lots of people treat it uh, kind of the growth in waiting list incidentally has risen by about 50% year on year uh, and kind of ophthalmology departments understaffed often quite demoralized often heavily uh, locum staffed so that's a that's a funding issue from from eight years ago when when the Royal College was saying we need to train more ophthalmologists. This was very predictable, this one, uh, because you can model age and population in, like, and, and the, the likely effects the democracy is going to have on the demand for ophthalmology services. Um, but it's particularly a problem because we don't, yeah, we don't measure follow-ups uh, so uh, trusts aren't really incentivized. And they've been a they've to been a target for a long time for efficiencies, haven't they? Of of tr- hospitals and and particularly of commissioners, I think, trying to get you know, essentially reduce inverted commas unnecessary unnecessary follow up. So why is this you know crunch come to a crunch now? Do you think? Well, so kind of unnecessary. Well, it's kind of so the GERF programs looked at it, uh, and HSIB looked at the new uh, Health uh, Safety Investigation Board have looked at it. Uh, and I, d- I mean, I'm not sure there is a particular reason why it's come to the crunch now, apart from so in the research Alison's done, uh, we've known since a, a study by um, a sort of offshoot of the of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists in 2017 that you know roughly well significant numbers of people would be losing having avoidable damage to their eyesight. Uh, so Karen McEwen like did that research uh, for Arcop. Um, so it's been known, um, but no one's really been able to put. So no one knows the full extent of uh, of the size of the backlog and how many people had their eyesight damaged avoidably. Otherwise, the closest anyone knows to it is uh, is what's in our story, where Asmore has been round every trust in the country to ask them uh, what the size of their year plus backlog was, i.e., people who should have had a a follow-up appointment but have not had it and have not had it for more than a year um and the amount of people who came to severe meaning permanent harm and came to moderate meaning not quite severe but still pretty bad and that's on we also got some data from um uh nhs resolution who handle all the clinical negligence claims uh on behalf of this and it's about 105 million pounds worth of 
of uh, of payouts over the last three years. So it's a pretty significant sure. area of that. It's kind of grown about 50% again year on year. Um, and the slightly startling thing about this is, is um, on the most recent HSIB report, they said, hey, we need to start mandating the recording of follow-ups. Because mm -hmm. if we start recording it, mm -hmm. then A, we'll know the size of this iceberg. They've uh, said it particularly in relation to ophthalmology. In or, or yeah, in the report was on ophthalmology, mm -hmm. prompted by a case of a 34-year-old woman uh, in Southampton who lost pretty much all of her sight through through just the trust losing track of when she needed her follow-up. Um, uh, and uh, I think I think about a £3 million settlement, roughly. Um, anyway, uh, they, they specifically recommended mandating uh, trusts keep track of the follow-ups. NHSing has like conspicuously failed to say whether they're going to do that or not so far. But it would seem like a fairly... It seems like something that would pay for itself fairly quickly. In that respect, in in, yeah. only in this case, the uh, one for the clinical review of standards. And also slightly yeah. scarily, yeah. Um, slightly scarily, there's dozens of people going to severe harm and like Alison's research kind of shows which trusts that is. But, you know, that's just the trusts that have got good enough records to have looked it up and have got good enough records to have followed up with people and seen how much harm they've come to. Kind of the, the size of the iceberg here is as yet unknown uh and 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 you know ophthalmology is but one specialty of many I was gonna say, do, do you see uh, signs of other of harm? i mean you have you've highlighted in your reporting some um evidence of harm from other elective weights in recent years do you see that coming to the fore more yeah oh, absolutely so so uh like there are signs that the centers become more aware of things of like issues around uh the, like the danger from follow-ups so like asis which are um, it, it a sort of that's the trouble with this stuff is it's kind of it's kind of nerdy and people haven't paid a lot of attention to it for a long time. But uh, there is a, the ASI is being a system, uh, kind of an e-referral system, which is supposed to uh, like keep track of people who couldn't get their their the slot that they wanted the treatment slot they wanted or the one their clinician wanted for them. Uh, and there's work going on at the moment to track just how many people have fallen off that system because it was never designed it was only designed to keep people on it for six months because the people designing it didn't expect Seems. anyone would have to wait more than six months to have that sorted out um so yeah i think i used i think i used the iceberg metaphor on a, another bit of work i did recently on it where people don't know uh quite how many people are lost to follow up but work is going on kind of locally sporadically haphazardly uh, and they don't know the amount of harm uh, that's been done to people avoidably okay. like quite alarming um, and I think you know, politically over the next few weeks and months the, the new government has some fascinating decisions to make about how they prioritise um, and, and or when they believe they can start to if and when they believe they can start to improve the, the, the direction of the NHS on these things um, uh, over the next few years um, yeah. Which we'll be following closely. Um, I suspect Another around the issue. yeah, re a massive resource issue. I think so. So I think we'll particularly be looking around the the budget in March and um, following that for those kind of big debates with the NHS about what's realistic and to achieve and and what the public should be able to expect.
Um, so that's it for this week. We will um, be back next week. Please subscribe. Send us any feedback you've got. My email's dave.west at wilmingtonhealthcare.com or via Twitter, Dave W. West. And please spread the word of our HSJ Health Check podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot.